Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Yan Kui. Yan is one of the most notable in the serverless industry, an AWS serverless hero, independent consultant, host of the popular podcast, Real World Serverless, author of Production Ready Serverless, and more recently, the AWS AppSync Masterclass. This is the second episode with Yan Kui, and it is my pleasure to have another opportunity to sit down with someone as well-accomplished and well-versed in the world of serverless, cloud, and the wider software movement. How are you doing today, Yan? Hey, Ryan, good to be here again, and good to catch up with you again uh, so soon after our episode on the, my podcast. Yeah, no, it was great being over there and just uh, getting a chance to talk from the other side of the, the table. Uh, so, yeah, there's been a lot of changes that have happened, and I, I guess that was uh, one of the first questions that I wanted to kick off uh, this podcast with was, you know, what things have changed for you in the past three to six months? Yeah, I guess the biggest uh, change the last uh, couple of months has been the, the AppSync Masterclass, uh, which has been uh, doing really well. Because I guess open the early access in the October, it's been just under three months now, I guess. Uh, and this is uh, done really well. I think it's more than 700 people signed up and uh, you know something, something like $100,000 in revenue, like total revenue already, uh, which is pretty crazy. Didn't really expect that, and uh, it's yeah, it's been keeping me really busy as well. Uh, end up just almost doing double as much content as I thought I would uh, up to this point. So far, we've done the the first the four modules, uh, which you know you've learned about the basics of uh, GraphQL, AppSync, how that compares to REST and the API Gateway, and uh, you've built uh, I guess a, a complete and functional backend for a Twitter clone that lets you, you know, sign in, sign out, edit your profile, post things, uh, like tweets, you know, follow other people, retweet, reply, and all of that. And uh, it's, uh, it's got loads of tests, uh, unit tests around the BPL templates, uh, Lambda functions, and end-to-end tests, and all of that. And uh, my co-instructor, Gerard Sanz, uh, who used to work on the Amplify team, he's now busy doing the front-end lessons. And I think we are going to be able to release a few of his uh, early lessons uh, pretty soon. So um, it's been pretty hard, uh, pretty um, full-on the last couple of months uh, because of that, as well as all the consulting work that I'm doing side-by-side side as well. Yeah, so this is uh, super, super crazy that it's been uh, that well-received. That's fantastic. And now having Gerard Sans help on that as well. What does it look like for the future of AppSync Masterclass? And do you have any plans to just like continue growing it underneath the, a certain brand and then add more courses or just keep expanding out Masterclass? Or what does that look like? Um, so for the Masterclass itself, uh, we still have a lot of content we need to produce. Uh, so we've got a basic working I guess the uh, backend for the Twitter clone, but then the, we're still going to add integration with our goal here to do uh, to implement the search features. We're going to introduce uh, GraphQL subscriptions, and uh, when we do the direct messaging support, and we're going to introduce uh, how those you know some common things you would like to do in terms of uh, th- things like. Um, uh, analytics tracking and we're going to do things like uh, a progressive web application how to do the mobile friendly ui side of things uh, that's kind of more gerard's gerard's uh, so expertise uh, uh, and all the stuff we're doing on now on the view uh, js and the vuex uh, side of things and tailwind css i did an initial version but he spent a bit of time just refactoring my you know, terribly you know, backend developer written front end code, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's you know, making it actually you know, work and idiomatic uh, for a front end application. So I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to that myself as well. Uh, learned a lot from him already. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think we're going to be busy doing this uh, AppSync Masterclass for the next at least uh, four months, maybe five, uh, trying to wrap up everything we have in the in the agenda, uh, which is quite substantial. And after that, I guess I might do another course this uh, later this year. But we see, we see how much uh, energy we got left after doing this one. But yeah, uh, AppSync Masterclass are probably going to turn into a workshop format at some point as well, uh, which is what I did for the Production Ready Serverless course I did with Manning. After that, uh, as you probably you know, you can probably understand uh, that you know, when you do a video course, it becomes really hard to keep up to date because it changes one thing maybe early on in the course, then the, that's going to have a ripple effect to everything else that you've done in the course. Um, so it took me like almost a year to finish the production-ready serverless for Manning, and uh, it's been really hard trying to find, you know, the change that we could update without having to re-record entire thing. Um, so I think uh, after I've got that basic content, turning that into a workshop that I can more easily uh, recycle, uh, not so much recycle, but I guess, uh, what do you call it, uh, iterate on uh, as new things are coming out uh, from AWS. Like after every reinvent, I have to change a lot of the, the lectures and also maybe some of the code examples. But uh, without having to record everything, it's a lot easier to, I guess, keep them updated uh, as time goes by and introduce a new leading practices as they as they emerge and the new tools and libraries as they become available. So I think going forward, I may do the same thing with the AppSync Masterclass because with, with uh, production-ready serverless, that has worked super well since uh, that course went live with Manning what, over, that's almost almost three years ago now. It's got time really flies. We've been, t- we've been running it as a workshop of uh, public as well as uh, for in-house training for a number of years now. And it's been really well received as well. And uh, we've been continuously refreshing the content and so when new things become available and uh, I guess uh, new things we need to teach people. So yeah, I think that's the, that's the future of AppSync Masterclass. So once uh, we finish all the, all the contents that we already planned, uh, which there's still plenty there. Yeah, that's fantastic. The part that I, I think a couple of points that you brought up are really interesting. One, the, it's hard to keep things up to date. I completely agree. I did a course and yeah, like you said, the first videos, they dictate the entire flow. So like as you modify one part, it ends up rippling out. And then you're, you know, you're kind of in this state where it's like, yeah, this video is like different code than like three videos later. And how do you go about that? That's super tough. So the workshop idea makes a lot of sense. One question I had around like more like the value side of Masterclass and who it would be for, you know, what, what, what would be the pitch to like somebody like if they take the course, they come out of it, what type of skill? where are they going to be in that progression to learning serverless or being able to be effective on a, a team that's working with serverless architectures? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we actually thought really long and hard about that. And uh, I guess one of the things that's uh, quite unique about this particular course, at least compared to other things I've done, is that uh, it's not just about, you no, know, it's not just about backend. It's not just about AWS. Uh, it's also you know, quite a lot of, uh, of uh, front end as well. And with GraphQL, and I think that makes a lot of sense because GraphQL as a technology is uh, it's really friendly to front-end developers uh, because uh, it's often used as a, like you know as a, your instead of uh, having uh, bespoke BFS, uh, everyone have to build them. Uh, you can have just a GraphQL API that unifies a lot of your I guess the backend services uh, to into something that is easy to consume from the front-end application. So it's really well suited with uh, teams that has got that full-stack mentality. Uh, and I think uh, with this, uh, if you are a front-end developer, you learn enough about AWS 
in terms of the services that you likely would end up using, like you know, Lambda, like AppSync, like uh, DynamoDB, and a few other things that's also quite often used together, like Cognito for authentication, CloudWatch logs for monitoring and things like that. So it gives you enough exposure to a lot of the common tools that you probably end up using in like a full stack environment where you're doing a lot of the backend work uh, using serverless components without it being so so laser focused on Lambda and all the ins and outs about Lambda and best practices around Lambda, which is kind of what I have you know, a lot of the courses I've done in the past. Uh, whereas with this, there's also a lot of, uh, I guess, content around the front end side of things, not just the um, you know, this is a view and this is how you do things with view, but also just how you link things together, how you connect to uh, Cognito, how you connect to a GraphQL backend and some of the sort of practices that uh, is common in the GraphQL community so that uh, using fragments, using other things like that. But uh, but yeah, you should have, uh, you should come out with, uh, I guess, uh, a really uh, well-equipped uh, to you know. Uh, a tool belt with uh, a lot of knowledge from both the front end and back end, but also in terms of the practices that is uh, useful in the production environment, like how to monitor things and not just you know write your GraphQL and uh, uh, your your, your AppSync API, deploy it and uh, hope for the best, but also how do you think about performance and caching strategy and uh, how to go about monitoring and things and reacting to problems in production and also in terms of testing and how do you think about testing for serverless and things like that. So there's a lot of different topics, uh, different nuggets that even an experienced uh, service developer should come away with uh, a lot of new things that, that they may not have thought about in the past. Because again, a lot of that is, you know, is I'm trying to apply that similar production ready sort of mindset to, to everything I teach that uh, it's not just about teaching you how to write code. That's the easy bit. It's about thinking about the whole application more holistically from the, the, the code you write to the services, what you, you know, what services you should use and the, and the practices and the processes you have in place for dealing with things uh, in production. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really good pitch. And also I can totally see the value of you know, tackling all those things at once, caching the front end side, even front-end uh, best practices, because I feel like that's something that I've seen where, you know, the serverless oftentimes lends itself more towards the back-end side. And so then courses tend to lean more heavy towards back-end with like a little bit of front-end where if there is a front-end component, it's like you said, it's just, it's like a hello world type of thing, but it doesn't get deep into like best practices of front-end at the same time. It's a very interesting concept. This is all like kind of wrapped into a bow and you know, you can basically build, you know, you mentioned progressive web apps or web applications and understand both best practices for the back end, front end, and, you know, infrastructure as code, all those things as well. And so I have a, I have another kind of interesting thing that I've, I, Alex O'Brien actually recommended a book called Ask Your Developer. Uh, I'm not sure if you've, have you read that book or not? No, I haven't. I haven't even heard about okay. that book. Uh, what's it about? Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, written by Jeff Lawson, the CEO of Twilio. I got to say, I'm in, I'm in love with this so far because it talks about the power of software developers and unleashing that creativity across the entire company. One concept that he kind of gets into quite heavily is that he talks about build versus die. Previously, you know, I've heard people say adapt or die. A lot of times when they're talking about legacy or companies that are trying to transition and keep up with the startups of uh, today. But from Jeff Lawson's perspective, companies that learn to build things uh, will outpace competitors. And it sounds like the reason why I wanted to bring this one up now is that it sounds like it's a natural transition from what you're just talking about. Your course is teaching people how to build things and build things quickly. And I guess, you know, Jeff Lawson, a CEO of Twilio, is talking about that 
companies that learn to build things are going to, you know, outpace competitors, you know, survive this period of massive disruption. And so I guess like, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? What do you think about uh, the build versus die, you know, mentality? And what do you think about asking the developer in terms of, uh, you know, unleashing some creativity that may be uh, trapped up and just, you know, writing application code only? I guess from from the from the, from the build versus the buy uh, perspective, uh, you know the serverless uh, or the the serverless mindset or the service for mindset is that uh, as much as possible we want to offload uh, non differentiating I guess concerns uh, to someone else, uh, like in you know, looking after infrastructures that shouldn't be my concern. If AWS can do it better for me and I can just rent uh, compute units uh, for running my application code. So from that perspective, uh, I definitely think you should be buying instead of a building. But again, if there are things that are, you know, is what your core business is 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 for, and that's why your customers are coming to you, then you should definitely you know be building those things. I guess you no, know, depending on what it is. Uh, in, so I guess I don't know if you follow Simon Wildley. So he's uh, he's the one that created the whole value mapping chain, and that is where you can look at your application and the different levels of. Um, of components you have and how it maps to, uh, I guess at the top you've got the things that the customer actually want, and then you uh, to deliver that you need uh, you need compute, you, you need the networking, you need uh, maybe some CRM stuff, and then you can look at for each of those components how mature that sector is. If there's something that is already commoditized like a compute, then you probably shouldn't be building your own compute platform versus something that is, okay, this particular area for, I don't know, doing some document generation or something like that. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but if that is something that is a brand new idea or is still very much, uh, uh, is not commoditized, everyone's kind of building their own thing and adding their own sort of set of features, then those are probably things you should be potentially building yourself or uh, look at, you know, if it's something that's, um, off the shelf, they can get you started uh, for now because your core business is not generating documentations. Then maybe you can, you know, you, you should buy instead. Uh, but again, Simon's uh, sort of the value chain mapping is about answering those questions on specific components and not just as a whole that we should build everything, which I don't think is going to serve anyone's any good because uh, you're going to be building a lot of things that are just not going to differentiate for your business. But at the same time, you also don't want to buy everything because, well, you know, there's, you know, somewhere you're going to have to you know, introduce a value for your customers. And otherwise, uh, why would they come to your business over uh, somebody else if you're just going to offer some generic uh, I don't know, service that uh, uh, they use? I guess I don't have one answer for that. It's just a question of uh, where does that, uh, uh, that component sit on the value cha- uh, chain mapping once you map it out, it becomes a lot easier if we'd answer those kind of questions. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, so yeah, so this is a really good point because it's like, where do you draw that boundary between, you know, what is, and I think you did a good job of kind of describing that. It's like, you know, you don't want to be building containers from scratch. You don't want to be building, you don't want to be replicating these things. And I think what's kind of, you know, like a compute networking, if there is, you know, services that exist already that you can then leverage and then quickly focus on your customer uh, ultimately, you probably want to be doing that. So in that case, you don't want to be building uh, in that case. When it comes to the AppSync Masterclass, it's kind of interesting because we're at a point now in just this you know, evolution of technology and software where the AppSync Masterclass and like what it is actually doing is built on so many layers of abstraction, right? And it's like uh, you know, the things that AppSync are doing if there's uh, VTLs in between AppSync to like a fully managed database that's completely being handled by 
AWS in the background or Lambda functions, it's handling the the compute and the scaling and all those things in the background as well. What's your thoughts on something like like the building applications today and being able to do something like you know this like what's what you're building with the AppSync Masterclass versus you know maybe like uh, ten years ago and all the things that you had to think about. Yeah, it's uh, it's night and day. Um, I mean, because uh, recently I wrote a blog post uh, that detailed about uh, a client project of mine uh, that I did, uh, where I built a backend for a new social network uh, for clients uh, working part time for a couple of weeks, and uh, you know that sort of thing just wouldn't have been possible uh, ten years ago because I would have been spending just you know, that much time just configuring the the VPCs uh, the database uh, and uh, the setting up the uh, AMIs and uh, uh, you know, doing the capacity planning and all of that stuff before I can even write a single line of uh, business logic that's gonna actually do what the client wanted to do with this app and that's that was normal 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, when I first started with AWS, there was no DynamoDB. Uh, we had to do a lot of work just to get simple DB at a time to scale to what we need. There was no RDS at the time as well. So at one point, we had to set up a multi-AZ cluster of EC2 instances to get them all connected and then setting and then configure MySQL. And then we have to, you know, when we were using a key for the key value store stuff, we were using a simple DB, which couldn't handle, I think it was something like 50 ops per second on a particular partition. So we had to do, you know, sorry, 50 writes per second on a partition. Uh, and there was no easy way for you to sort of scale that quickly. So we built hierarchical uh, you know, layer of data assets from like, you know, some, some um, uh, at the time, I don't know if you, if you remember, like 10 years ago, there was MemCached was, was a thing. And then the, someone built, uh, uh, like, I guess the next, Oh, what's it called? The North Scale. There's a company called North Scale at the time that built something like Memcached, but basically Memcached with the persistence. Uh, so we used that as well uh, for in-memory, but uh, loading data really quickly. And then uh, we have some persistent layer that you know, save into a simple DB at a, you know, at a rate that simple DB can handle. And there's some stuff we had to put into uh, MySQL. We had to put a caching layer in front of that. I mean, that stuff took so much time. I mean, the project would be delivered in a few months' time you know, of us working very hard as a team. That would be considered fast. If I was to build the same thing today using the tool that's available to us today, uh, I'll probably get it done in a few few days uh, just on my own. Uh, the amount of things I just don't have to worry about anymore is just amazing. It's great. It's made my job so much easier. It's a lot, I guess, in a way that it's... Uh, if, if I'm looking at this situation as an engineer, as someone who wants to tinker, it's terrible because all the fun has gone out, all the sort of discovery, how do I do this crazy combination of uh, EC2 and uh, VPC and uh, all these different networking stuff to make everything work, that excitement is gone. Uh, but what's replaced it is just getting things done, no frills, no trills, and just get it done and then I can just relax. Um, so as I'm getting older, it's, uh, I appreciate that a lot more because uh, uh, you know I don't want to be waking up at three o'clock in the morning because some some random shit I pull up in EC2, some agent is running in the background to make the whole thing work. You stop working at three a.m. Um, you know, those things were exciting when you were younger, but uh, <laughs> nowadays uh, I like to I like to have my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's uh, that's so interesting to hear like the background of you know how how you basically progress through this evolution and seeing, you know, the, the before 10 years ago where things were required so much complexity and so many things to be handled uh, just to build something. And, you know, I think you said like, I think three months if you're working hard, it's like, yeah, it's, 
<laughs> you have to be working really hard. And so now like something that we're seeing emerge, which is uh, kind of interesting is, you know, you're having more companies like Webflow. Uh, we've seen uh, companies like, uh, well, let's just stick with Webflow. So the idea behind like no code, low code, um, I'm starting to see a lot more people talk about this. And I've also seen things like uh, AI code generation and and that type of thing that, you know, helpers to just help developers move faster and build things quicker. Do you think this is a natural progression of software or is it is it only is it going to be useful everywhere in all use cases or is it going to be kind of niche in like specific areas? Or how do you see where are we heading towards? Like what is coming? Um, I guess it's difficult to say. I certainly think uh, I've seen some of those uh, uh, those uh, AI examples. Uh, what's that thing called? Uh, is it GL2 or GP2? Some sort of demos for that is really, really amazing. But at the same time, it's also uh, a lot of it, I guess, it's just about uh, semantics. Uh, it's able to work out you know, what things tend to go together and uh, it's, it's able to work out things to, uh, um, to some extent, but it's not, I guess, it's not genuine um, creativity. Uh, and that's something that they still quite well. I guess the, we haven't quite figured out that how to do that yet. At least I haven't seen the demos that that's clever enough to sort of portray it as uh, genuine uh, creativity or problem solving. But it's I think we're definitely getting closer, which is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, I look forward to the day when you can just tell a computer to make something that does this and that, and it's not just you no know, a trivial thing that it can uh, uh, pull out of uh, some common user template and stuff like that. But yeah, who knows? Maybe that is going to come in the next five, 10 years because we are definitely hitting that, I guess, uh, exponential growth when it comes to AI and the applications or what people and what things can be done with AI. So I'm super excited about what's, you know, what's coming in that particular space. And uh, in terms of some of the no-code, low-code solutions, uh, uh, I guess it really depends on a specific solution you're talking about. I think most of them are really useful in a, for a particular niche. But they, I guess at the same time, this is not all that different from a lot of the managed services you can just use for solving a particular niche of a problem. For a more general purpose thing, I haven't used uh, one that is that makes me think, okay, this is uh, you know, this is good enough for say ninety nine percent of the problems that I need to solve. Um, a lot, of, I guess, a lot of these things are still quite either too opinionated for more general use or potentially is uh, still quite niche in, the, in terms of the problem that uh, is designed to solve. I guess, yeah, that's, that's kind of my feeling, but I haven't used those things, uh, I guess, an awful lot. So I don't know how valid my opinion is about, uh, about these things. Yeah, no, so I, I think the, something that you talked about made me think about, I, I, there's sometimes conversations that happen. I had a conversation with a friend recently and it was about the almost like a cyclical process where, you know, you move through cycles where maybe you work at an enterprise company and you're like, man, all these gatekeepers and all this process. And then you think, okay, I'm going to get rid of that. So you then go to startup and then it has less guardrails, less process, but then it's like, oh, wow, there's, this is completely unstructured. And so then it's like, let's go back to like a medium structure. And then it's like, oh, maybe this is not enough structure. Things are too chaotic and it's back to enterprise. Has this happened before in the past where there's been, this type of like no code, low code type of uh, thing happening, you know, where where people are trying to develop things to just make it clickable. And as a result of that, does it end up creating things to be too generic, right? Like, like, for instance, when you think about like the actual business value, does it just become like cubicles at that point, if everybody's using these type of platforms to generate things? Yes, they can do it fast. But is it different enough? Does that matter? I guess it really depends on what it is you're trying to build. 
I've used uh, some of these platforms many years ago. Uh, oh God, I forgot what's that thing called now. Uh, .NET used to have this uh, thing where it was um, .NET something workflow foundation, I think it's called. But yeah, it's like a local pl- platform. Uh, but again, it's you know it, you can do certain things, but then the moment you need to deviate from what it was designed to do, it becomes quite difficult. And you kind of see the same thing happening now with uh, some of the tools like Amplify. I was talking to a customer. Uh, just now, actually, who you know, wants to use Amplify because it allows them to focus on the bit that differentiated the user experience that they offer, which is on the front end, which is great. And that's what Amplify is, is, is great for. But the moment they need to do something a bit custom, a bit out of the box, with, uh, that's all, a bit outside the box of what Amplify can deliver, it becomes quite difficult. And to the point whereby they're now thinking, well, it's more effort and more cost to try to make it work with Amplify and work around all the limitations than to just rip it out and replace it with something that you know, gives us a bit more control. And I think you're going to hit that with a lot of the tools that we have right now that they are, you know, they, they solve us problem in a specific opinionated way that it works well if you're able to fit inside its sort of limitations and the moment you need to do more customization then it becomes you start starting to fight against the, the tool or the framework uh, and i think that's saying that's probably going to still be the case uh, so far i mean all the tools i've seen that it fits into that that bracket of a no code, low code, all kind of be you know, like that. That at some point you just hit the limitations. That it's going to be more effort to work around them than to just rip it out and replace it with something that's more customizable and that give you a bit more control. But again, a lot of people are very happy with uh, tools like Amplify because they don't have to customize it. It's just a case of uh, okay, when you do need to customize things and you need to you know get outside of uh, get get beyond what Amplify can deliver. How easily can you escape from the, I guess, the, the the tool itself? Okay, and so based on that, I think the next question is, you know, we've heard we've heard things where you know a lot of uh, tutorials, things like that, they focus on the hello world type of application. The reason why you had to make a production ready serverless, maybe to some degree, could be because it's very easy now to build a V1. After the V1, what what ends up happening from your experience, like with like serverless and all that stuff, like it's, you know, Amplify, you can build something very fast, low amount of inputs. There's a lot of different tools that allow you to do that. But then as it grows, what what type of things do people hit? And do they have to then make a decision to switch off of it? Or how do they go about that process? Yeah, so I guess I can answer the first part first, uh, which, yes, I did make the production really serverless, uh, to, kind of three and a half years ago because I saw lots of uh, you know, getting started stuff, but then having built a product myself and then having to maintain it, you kind of learn that, okay, you know, writing the code and deploying it like you do with a hello world, that is the easy part, but that's less than 5% of what you, of what you end up doing because all the other things you still have to think about in terms of the in terms of security, in terms of uh, you know, making sure that you've got things like you know, basic things like you've got WAF rules to protect you against uh, you know, SQL injection, protect you against uh, denial of service attacks. Uh, in terms of observability, how do you debug things? How do you test things? Uh, no one's going to bother to include those in the Hello World example. But guess what? Those are the things that everyone have to do with all the time when you are working in a real world project. And uh, you need to teach people how to do this. You can't just abandon them at the Hello World and then that's it. And let them figure out how to do all the rest themselves. 
Um, so that's the inspiration for why I did uh, why I did the production ready serverless because I didn't find anything at the time that kind of focused on that and you know the less glamorous part of you know, things all the things you don't see after you build this flashy demo. But guess what? That's what we spend ninety five percent of our time doing as developers. Um, so. That's why uh, production ready service came about. And as for uh, sort of problem that people run into using tools like Amplify, I've heard a couple of uh, secondhand stories uh, or in terms of uh, customers or you know, people that I know that have used the Amplify in production and then they run into problems. A couple of things that seem to came up quite a lot is uh, when you need to, again, customize things beyond what Amplify is designed to allow you to do, like some of the how it generates the um, the VTL templates, how it does the order the permission model based on so, you know, the stuff that you get out of the box uh, that you can define in the VT, uh, in the GraphQL schema, uh, how you connect things with relationships and different entities, and uh, you get all of that stuff uh, out of the box, which is great. But the moment you need to do a bit more custom things, then it becomes quite difficult. The other thing that I often hear that people that makes people switch back to something that offers more control is that they run into problems when, say, okay, you're, you know, you're hopping along, you're making changes to your model, uh, everything is great from the Amplify perspective, but then you're still bound by limitations that the CloudFormation has, which is, in this case, uh, oftentimes was that uh, when you need to introduce a, a new, I guess, a new model or something in, uh, something in your model that end up adding to uh global secondary index, well, CloudFormation is not going to do that. So this particular problem hit a lot of people and uh, forced them to basically have to delete the stack and, and start from scratch, which when you're building like a proof of concept or, or, or a demo app or something or dev, it does fine. No one's going to really complain, but you can't do that to a product that needs to run 24-7 with real customer who's paid you money to you know, keep this thing running, right? So that's another thing that hits a lot of people a lot, about a lot of people, but the good news for this particular problem, uh, this particular problem with a uh, global secondary index is kind of fixed now with the Amplify team. They've recently announced a thing whereby when the Amplify generates a change that's going to require making two global secondary index uh, uh, to the CloudFormation template, then it's actually going to do them in, in the two steps. Uh, so instead of doing one CloudFormation update, it's going to do two, which is really clever. It's a really nice way to sort of work around this without you having to think about this consciously but I guess um, you can still hit other problems that falls into the same category of uh, cloud formation changes that you are not consciously thinking about because it's generated by the tool and that puts you uh, against the limitations in cloud formation. And I think uh, one thing that's, I guess this kind of reminds me a little bit about is uh, when you take, say, some open source projects that gives you like a Docker image, uh, you can just run this thing in your own Docker, uh, in your own ECS cluster or whatever Dockerized environment you've got. You know, it's open source. You can just host it and run it yourself, which sounds great on paper until you realize that you don't own the code, but you own the uptime, uh, which means any problems that you run into along the line of deployment, configuration, or just you know, something happening in production, that is still you that's on the hook to actually fix it. And because you don't own the code, that fixing bit is going to be extra difficult because you don't understand how things work under the hood. Um, so I think uh, you know, the spirit of that, especially for teams that are more, in fact, I think the teams are more likely to use tools like Amplify because they don't want to or they don't understand how 
a lot of the 80% stuff works, that is probably the most dangerous thing you can do to yourself because you're automating things that you don't understand. And the moment something breaks, you're going to be really hard-pressed to fix things in the most stressful situation possible because, well, guess what? Customers are complaining that your application is down or is not working. Because you don't understand how things work under the hood, it makes it harder for you to actually understand what the real problem is and how to fix it. So if you understand how things work under the hood then and you're just looking for ways to automate uh, as much as you can, then maybe Amplify is a better tool than, the, say, if you just don't want to know and just want to use something really simple, then I think that's putting yourself in a really dangerous position. Awesome. And then a follow-up to yeah. this is, I guess, can we ever escape CloudFormation? Is there a path in the cloud future where CloudFormation is, is successfully abstracted away, where it's just... All I guess all these problems that you were mentioning previously, the compilation in the background, all the different frameworks that allow you to build infrastructure as code, they all, you know, and architect goes to SAM, SAM goes to CloudFormation, you know, Stackery goes to SAM, goes to CloudFormation, uh, CDK, I guess is using the AWS SDK instead. But what does that look like for the future of like cloud development? Do you think that, do you think that Stacker, like something like Stacker is the, the answer to this? Uh, or yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't think CloudFormation is necessarily a bad thing that we need to get away from. I mean, a CDK still compiles to CloudFormation. So that's um, a Stackery. Stackery is just a visualization layer on top of CloudFormation. So you're still going to be bound by all the same limitations that CloudFormation has. And I think as a cloud developer, you really should spend the time to familiarize yourself with some of these basic building blocks like CloudFormation, like IAM. It's really gonna it's, it's gonna do you good. It's, uh, if you want to be using building things on AWS, you really need to understand how AWS works. I don't think there's any shortcut to that. I mean, you could use Terraform, but then that just gives you a different kind of well, a different set of uh, trade offs. The fact that uh, while CloudFormation gives you rollbacks when the when there's a problem with a deployment, uh, Terraform doesn't. It just leaves you hanging in the middle of uh, wherever you end up in the uh, in your deployment pipeline. While uh, I don't know about you, but uh, to me, that's not a good thing. Uh, most of the time, I don't want my application to be left hanging in some halfway house between what I want it to be, uh, you know, with the state I want it to be in, uh, and what is the, the, the actual working state that it was in before. I want it to be either one or the other, not just stuck where it ended up you know, stuck uh, where you, that you got stuck at. Uh, and also uh, Terraform has got other problems as well. So I guess the, right now you've got the two main options of either CloudFormation or Terraform as the basic building block. And there's also tools that builds on top of that that gives you a lightweight, uh, I guess, the syntax or maybe some automation around the stuff that you do with CloudFormation so that you don't have to write, I don't know, thousands and thousands of lines of uh, CloudFormation code by hand. Uh, CDKs, things like uh, server framework, SAM, all kind of falls into that bracket. I think uh, Stackery is, is great in that it also vi uh, offers visualization on top of all that so that it makes it a lot more approachable in terms of uh, visualizing what you have in your CloudFormation stack and, uh, and actually working with it and configuring them. That's a good thing to have. But I don't think CloudFormation itself is a problem that we need to necessarily move away from. I think it, uh, there's a lot of things that you need to improve on. Really big one is just AWS keeps releasing things without CloudFormation support, uh, which is a bit... I guess the mixed messages that on the one hand they keep talking about infrastructure as code, on the other hand uh, they keep you know releasing services or features that doesn't have uh, cloud version support, and the documentation keep or tutorials just keep telling you to click buttons uh, in the, in the console, which is uh, what that is just which is not what you are telling people to do, which is you know infrastructure as code. So I think cloud formation is improving, but it's not something that we really need to get away from per se. And when it comes to this idea of 
it sounds like there's like an underlying thing here, which is like simple can actually be complex and that, you know, we can take it to a certain degree of simplicity, like, like a serverless framework over cloud formation to make the cloud cloud formation set of thousands of lines, you know, it's hundreds of lines. But if we take it even further than that, at some point, do we end up shooting ourselves in the foot? And, and what do you think about that? Like, is there a line where uh, it's like helping generate some part, but if it gets too far, then you're kind of in this like black box scenario where I think you were describing earlier, where it's like, uh, you really don't know what you don't know. And there's just errors popping up that seem like they're coming from a different world. What do you think? Yeah, so that's this um, quote that's often uh, attributed to Einstein. I don't know if uh, it's actually uh, true, uh, but he, he says something like, uh, make something complex, simple, but not any simpler, uh, or something like something along that line. I need to actually look it up. <laughs> but uh, uh, And also there's, uh, there's a really famous talk from uh, uh, Rick Hickey, who is the creator of the Closure Language, uh, he, where he talks about uh, simple made easy, uh, where there's, there's a distinction between what is simple and what's easy. And oftentimes we mistake one uh, for the other or we kind of use them inter- inter- interchangeably. Um, so I think there's this notion that we should make something easy, like uh, we just hide cloud formation altogether, but then you have this problem of you, you're not just making something simpler, but you're also taking away possibilities or flexibilities that uh, you need to have which in order to solve more complex problems so you're taking away not just the complexity but also the capabilities of what one can do with the tool and, and whereas the simple is um, reducing is kind of more reducing the complexity but without taking away any of the things that you could do so i think uh, like sim- simplicity is great but oftentimes we end up with easiness instead and I think that's the wrong thing to optimize because, again, we are optimizing for the hollow world examples, but not the real world messy problems that people have to deal with in the real world. So this is a great transition to another thing, which is thinking about stuff more long term, right? You know, making it very simple. You have this, you know, this automated tool that abstracts all these things in the background. The more layers that you add there, what about 10 years from now? What about 15 years from now, right? Like what... What happens if, you know, these apps that we're building today actually last longer than a couple of years? And now these serverless apps that we're building now uh, will become legacy, right? They will be legacy in 10, 15 years. And the is there a threat that like some of the abstractions that you use to handle these things, maybe they just won't be updated any longer in the future? Like I, I have trust in like serverless framework continuously being updated, Terraform being updated. But then when it comes to like the raw cloud formation side, uh, I, I had probably have more trust in that cloud formation is going to be updated 10 years in the future than these other abstractions over the top. And what are, what are your thoughts on that in terms of serverless apps becoming legacy in 10 years from now? And what is there ways that we can prepare for that? Or are we just going to be all in the same spot? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, the thing is, uh, it's it's always easy to look back uh, with uh, hindsight, uh, but trying to predict what may become legacy in the future that's much harder because we just don't know what's going to unfold uh, in the future. But certainly, you now when talking about tools that you think you can depend on for the for the long haul, um, I think you know anything from AWS, you can pretty much uh, guarantee that it's going to be around. Um, I mean, SimpleDB is still around; uh, you can still use it uh, if you had it before in your account. Uh, or you can get in touch with AWS uh, support and ask for it. I don't know why you would, but you still could. So 
I guess the depending on the vendor, uh, and then the I guess Google, you can't really trust Google with the same thing. They're just gonna kill your uh, service that you use in production tomorrow with, with no <laughs> with no remorse. Um, so <laughs> so I probably don't hold the same sort of level of trust with the Google services. But certainly, when it comes to Azure, or when it comes to uh, uh, AWS, I do have a pretty good uh, uh, trust that you know whatever is there today should still be available in ten years time. And uh, as for tools like the Server Framework and Terraform, the fact that it's not you know, it's not just um, entirely commercial product, but it's also widely supported by the community and uh, widely dependent uh, upon by the community. That also gives me a lot of faith over uh, something that is just entirely a uh, commercial tool that's a uh, closed uh, source tool that's uh, supported by just a particular vendor who, you know, if they go out of business tomorrow, then the, it may just no, never get updated. The fact that most of the deployment uh, updates now to the server framework is uh, done by uh, external contributors, that's probably gives me more confidence about the long-term, I guess, uh, safety and the outlook of uh, the server framework than something maybe like, uh, I don't know what's a good example, but uh, maybe something like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if Sam is a good example for that or CDK. Uh, I don't know if they accept external contributions or is that entirely internally uh, supported by AWS. Uh, I know they do have, uh, I know it's probably a repo and all that, but I don't know if uh, Sam accepts uh, uh, external contributions to the to the core project itself. But when I look at a, a tool that I want to use uh, for the long haul and thinking about uh, the long term, you know, how can I, how much can I depend on this tool being around in 10 years time? Uh, that's the sort of thing I look at is either if it's coming from a vendor, if it's a service, then you know, does the vendor have got a good track record of uh, you know, keeping things around uh, you know, for, for the long haul? And uh, if it's a tool, then the, is this tool supported by a sizable community that depends on it, but also contribute towards it? And have a say in the, I guess, in the outlook of the of the tool, or it is it going to be entirely dictated by one company who, if they decide to, you know, do something different or go a different direction or they go bust, then the tool is going to be just be going to be, I guess, uh, um, sitting there and not have another update for years and years to come. Uh, so those are the sort of things I look at uh, when I look at what I think about. Okay, are this is this thing going to be a problem for me in the five ten years time? That's a great answer. And I know it's uh, it's kind of interesting to think about like the stuff that we're doing today will be legacy and that, you know, time will pass and we'll look back on all this stuff much, much older. And so I guess, you know, just uh, kind of getting to the end of the podcast here, something that came up recently, obviously reInvent 2020 was the first virtual reInvent. And I know I'm switching topics pretty hard here, but it spanned multiple weeks. And what were your thoughts on the format? Do you think like conferences like this are going to happen in the future? Then we'll get into a few more things about reInvent and then and then come to a close. So, yeah, I thought the format was okay. I, I did enjoy some of the talks um, and uh, the fact that uh, you can watch on demand pretty quickly. That's also useful. But reInvent for me, the last couple of years has been has been mostly about uh, the networking side of things, which you can't really replicate. I know they tried it. They kind of tried did a good job uh, with the. Uh, with the sort of whole eight of uh, heroes program, they give us uh, Oculus Quest Two, and uh, they build this a neo a neon city that you can go and hang out. But uh, it still doesn't replicate that uh, that I guess the physical networking um, opportunity that we had with reInvent, which was probably for me the, the most important thing of uh, going to Vegas every year is just to meet up with people that I you know talk to all the time online but never see in person. Uh, it's just great to hang out with uh, people that you kind of know virtually and the you know 
finally meet them face to face and build up those uh, connections and friendships. Uh, yeah, so these reinvent just definitely don't have that. The sessions I always just kind of watch them afterwards anyway. But yeah, I I do think uh, given given the world that we live in today, uh, that's kind of unavoidable. Uh, and I hope that uh, there will be better solutions uh, soon in terms of uh, you know how can we try to recreate that uh, hallway track better for conferences uh, like reinvent or just any other conference. Uh, I've seen a lot of different attempts at this. Uh, nothing has quite come close to it. <laughs> but as I get more and more so involved, uh, or engaged in with my, with my uh, Oculus Quest 2 uh, and the, some of the stuff I'm seeing with VR chat, that actually seems like a quite a good community, even though uh, that frame rate when you've got when you know, in a VR chat room with a lot of people, that's probably not great either. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do think uh, we're going to see virtual conferences as a thing uh, going forward. But no, I hope we can find a better solution for creating that network uh, network uh, opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the social aspect of it, it's, you know, as software developers, I think sometimes it can, you know, everything can be solved with code or something and we can recreate, you know, this type of experience online in some form, there's got to be a solution. But yeah, I, I agree. If there is a solution, it's, it's, uh, haven't seen it yet. And it's, it's a very tricky, tricky thing to get where you have that, that human to human interaction. And then moving to the more, you know, technical side, you know, announcements that came out, there was a lot of them, a lot of them around serverless, a lot of them around Lambda. You know, which ones spoke to you the most and which ones should people pay attention to if they're working kind of in the serverless industry? Yeah, so I actually wrote uh, my um, some of my thoughts on this on my blog a little while back. Um, one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, announcement for serverless uh, is, is I think it's the announcement for uh, Aurora Serverless V2. Uh, obviously, that's the more sort of eye catching stuff like uh, container image support. Uh, but again, I think that's that's a st- there are some specific use cases where that's useful, but it's not something that everyone should be jumping to right away. There's a lot more. I guess complexity involved when you need to uh, bundle the container images and there's additional you know, stuff you need to get involved in your in your build steps and all of that. There's also the sort of per millisecond billing. Again, not something that you really need to pay attention to. It just happens for you and uh, saves you money. But I think the Aurora Serverless V2 is probably uh, the biggest one for me uh, as far as the uh, serverless announcement goes because it does offer some really interesting uh, technical advancements over uh, Aurora Serverless V1. And um, I guess it's still in the is it in the it's still in preview for in the few months, a couple of months. Um, so yeah, that's something that is worth checking out once it's uh, uh, once it goes into uh, GA. I'm definitely definitely looking at uh, that with. Um, potentially a mind about using it for some projects uh, in the future. Yeah. So I think for me, that's the big one. Awesome. Yeah. I saw Jeremy Daly go into it. I think I, I probably saw you post a little bit on that as well with the Aurora serverless V2. Definitely seems like there's a lot of technical advancements there. And I know that we've tried to introduce serverless Aurora a few times, the V1 version, and it kind of got shot down different times based on, you know, just the idea that this is going to be better than running Aurora, it'll scale to use, paper use, all those things. But then in reality, it didn't scale fast enough and there was other things. So the fact that the idea behind serverless Aurora v2 is that a lot of those things are solved and it seems like through community testing, it does seem like this is a huge improvement. Really, really interesting about that as well. The per millisecond billing one, it brings up a very interesting concept, which is when you use these type of serverless offerings, they just improve themselves in the background. And I think that that's something that we might skip over to some degree. But if, you know, 
it's very it's a very interesting and beneficial thing that you get out of using serverless and yeah do you want to talk on that for a second yeah absolutely i mean i remember when the uh, the meltdown inspector uh came out uh, i spent like a week uh just patching all the different amis and container images i had uh, for the company i was working for at the time uh we didn't even think about lambda until i saw a tweet from chris Munns that uh, all the infrastructure that's running fargate and lambda has been patched for both inspector and meltdown and that's kind of just hit me that oh yeah uh, that's one of the benefits of using the platforms that manage services like Lambda. It's just you don't have to worry about OS security. Um, and the same goes to, like you said, in terms of performance, uh, it just goes faster over time that uh, if anyone was actually paying attention to Lambda performance over time, you know, they would have seen a gradual improvement over co-star time over the last couple of years as uh, the Lambda team has introduced a number of different changes that improves the uh, overall co-star performance for their, their for their functions uh, over time. And now with the, in terms of cost as well, the fact that now you don't get built in the 100 millisecond blocks, it just suddenly things got cheaper. So you know, using things like you know, Lambda and the other managed services like that, you're going to find your application becomes more secure, uh, more resilient um, and cheaper and faster over time without you having to do anything. And the time becomes the best automation tool you could you know you could have. It just wait. <laughs> like in a year's time, I can guarantee you everything will be faster, better, it's more secure. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Again, it's the sort of thing that I have to have you know, a lot of time invested into uh, infrastructure to make things go a tiny bit faster, a tiny bit cheaper. Now I just wait for the vendor to do that work for me. Perfect. I completely agree with all the fully managed uh, breakdown there that it gets faster and cheaper and, and better over time in the background. And it's kind of this just amazing, you know, thing that we're operating off of now. And on the Spectre meltdown thing, I actually was doing that as well at the time that we had like a, we had this big legacy account, had all these servers in it. And, you know, I was a like a JavaScript developer turned into like operations and I was trying to patch <laughs> all these servers through this thing. And it's like, it required so much engineering time and meetings and process and all these things. And the fact, like you said, like Chris Mons just sends out a tweet, like, yep, they're patched in the background. Don't even worry about it. Don't even sweat it. Meanwhile, everybody else is trying to get into EC2 instances and, you know, update things. So I think that this uh, kind of brings us to a close. So as we're bringing to a close, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, how do they find your stuff and keep a tab on you? And do you have anything that you want to promote or, or toss out there? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I guess the burningmonk.com is the, the first place that you should go to uh, check out my stuff. Uh, I've got so much content around the serverless uh, uh, on my blog already. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter at the Burning Monk or LinkedIn as well. And uh, you can you know, check out my courses, uh, my workshops. So check out AppSync Masterclass at uh, appsyncmasterclass.com or my upcoming workshops at uh, productionreadyservers.com. And if you want to hear me and uh, Ryan chat about uh, how Ryan's been doing uh, stuff with the serverless and how he got into it, then also go to realworldserverless.com to listen to our episode from, I guess, the last week or a couple of weeks ago, depending on uh, when this one goes live. So yeah, I mean, I mean, all the so usual social network, uh, social media places and, uh, and my blog. So yeah, check me out. Awesome. Well, I think that that does it. Thanks again for being on the podcast, Jan. Uh, it was great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. And thanks for inviting me again. Absolutely. To those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless Podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out talkingserverless.io. 
Please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts if you found this valuable. And of course, uh, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. Thank you.